It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Mike Shera. Mike serves as the president and CEO of the C12 Group as well as sits on the board of directors. Prior to his role with C12, Mike worked in a variety of industry settings, including Walgreens Health Initiatives, Health by Design, and Grace Point Church, yielding a blend of Fortune 50, small and medium-sized businesses, and nonprofit leadership experiences. Mike grew up in Alaska and met his wife Jackie while in college at Trinity International University, where he achieved a degree in marketing. Mike is passionate about discipleship, gospel-driven collaborations, foster care, and integrated missional strategies. Mike Sherrill, welcome into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. Good to be here. Ah, wonderful to have you here. And, you know, uh, being an active member in C12, this is quite exciting for me. Uh, I, as you know, have been in a group up here in the Connecticut area for about the last year and just gotten so much out of the organization. And we'll get into that a little later in the forecast, but in the podcast, rather. But I uh, wanted to start just talking a little bit about you. Uh, you know, tell us a little about your early years, you know, where you grew up and, you know, what your family life was like. Sure. You know, so I, uh, I have a distinction in that there's only about eight of us, but I grew up in Alaska. And you know, a lot of people <laughs> take cruises and hunt and fish there. I actually grew up there, um, which most people go, I've never met somebody from there. Um, we were outnumbered by moose and bears, but <laughs> it, it was a, a phenomenal place to grow up. Um, Man, it's pretty hard to live in a place like that, surrounded by majestic beauty and not uh, not have a sense of awe and a sense of, uh, man, there's there's something else running the ship besides me. Born and raised there, Mike? Was pretty that, much, uh, pretty much. Yeah, I was yeah. a military family. Both, okay. I'm actually the first person, like three generations, not to be in the military. Wow. Um, so we moved around a little bit within the state and a little bit down south for schooling. But yeah, childhood all through high school is all in Alaska. Okay. Dad military, mom military, both? Yeah, both. Yeah, cool, cool. And my brothers and sisters uh, also enjoying uh, uh, that journey. So uh, the, it seemed like it didn't take with my generation. So I, <laughs> I grew up with uh, grew up with a brother. Got a blended family, so we got a bunch of siblings. Uh, as you go out in the family tree, um, but we've each all gone kind of gone different directions. Right, right, cool. And uh, mom and dad, uh, uh, educational background. Did they go to college? Kind of go that route before going into the military. No, so I'd be the first person to graduate college in my family, actually. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. And uh, tell us a little bit about some of the influences that mom and dad had while growing up. Yeah, so so watching my mom and dad uh, grow up, I mean, they, uh, they did a great job in parting um, 
love for me and uh, esteem for me and a belief that I mean, God made me for a purpose and um, were quick to affirm any any aspiration I had. You know, I think I was going to be a doctor, pilot, firefighter, artist, <laughs> and all those things I was apparently told I'd be good at. I don't know that that was always true, but... Um, and that was just in the eighth grade, right? That was just in the eighth grade, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I watched them struggle through a lot. I um, I watched them have go through a lot of hardship um, and uh, go through struggled relationships and struggled careers and, and certainly realized that um, things don't just work. In fact, one of the kind of early conclusions I had was, man, you can you can have really good intentions. You can even be a church-going person and uh, things can still get pretty messy. And so I, I pretty early started um, a quest to find mentors and just kind of gravitated towards um, people who seem to know things or have navigated things where I wanted the outcome that they got. And I was always curious, like, how'd you get there? How'd that work? Awesome. Yeah, that's really important. Faith-based home community. Yes, yeah, so the church was a big deal. Was, we were we were in church every Sunday and every Wednesday, and and that was certainly um, a big part of my heritage for sure. Tell us about some of those mentors. Uh, who were they? Um, you know, what kind of an impact did they have on your life growing up? Yeah, yeah. I've got a I, one of my favorite trips I did about ten years ago. I actually went back to Alaska and looked up every one of these folks and took them out to lunch and said, Hey, you need to know what you did in my life. And <laughs> that was actually a lot of lunches because there's a long list, but everything from, I think about my grandfather who uh, similarly had a high school education, uh, enlisted in the army, worked in the mines and made general and, and overcame all sorts of life obstacles, but just had this um, servant leadership uh, caricature to uh, pastors at my church who would just pour into me and, and mentor me. Or I remember a guy named Wayne Lynch, who, um, man, life was not easy for him, but he just had this resilient joy. And I'd go, yeah, man, what's the secret to your joyfulness? <laughs> like, what's that? Because that's not circumstance. Or um, I remember a, a friend's dad ran a was a construction worker, and yeah. I thought his dad was wealthy because they had the car and the house and the life, and and uh, found out they didn't actually make much money. They were just really good stewards. And so I started asking him, like, what's the secret to that? So my radar was always on to find someone who um, had kind of categorical mentorship attributes. And I'd say, let me learn that part. Yeah. Yeah. Great. 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 Sink out. What What about school? Were you a good student? I was, so I'm, I'm a, I was a weird student. I loved learning. <laughs> I just, um, I loved learning incessantly, insatiably curious. Uh, I was one of those weird kids who'd go to the library all summer, taking out books and, you know, all the way into college, I'd write papers not for credit, just because I wanted the professor to help me process my critical thinking on something. So a bit of a weird, uh, weird kid there who God just gave a thirst for learning. And it was helpful. Was that early on, even elementary, secondary school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I came to know Jesus um, in elementary school. And I literally, from that point on, began staying up to like midnight, reading my Bible every night, just because I wanted to know God. And I wanted to Real know thirst for knowledge. the way the world worked. And so... Um, if no one was telling me to. In fact, people were like, why are you reading that so much? I just, man, I wanted to know. What about uh, outside of school? Sports, music, theater, anything else that uh, caught your fancy? Yes, I, I was uh, real involved in, in art and local church and serving. Uh, my, my childhood was kind of shaped. I was crippled at age four with an acute autoimmune disease that um, was an acute form of rheumatoid arthritis throughout my body. And so most of my 
youth up through early college, uh, that really put curtails on things because I would end up in bed rest or hospitalized pretty easily. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then when I was 15, my, my mother had a, uh, my parents were divorced. My mom had a brain injury and I became her caregiver. And so so the last few years of high school doing correspondence school for me, homeschooling my little brother and navigating the world of you know medical care and neurology. So my world kind of got hijacked in this world of, um, yeah, just social medicine and caregiving and uh, figuring things out in the middle of all that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of service orientation. Uh, much time for any entrepreneurial things when you were younger? You know, did you do, did, did you have paper routes in Alaska or were there other things that you got involved with? Well, very Alaskan. I mean, the first entrepreneurial thing I would have done would be buy a snowblower and, and go up and down the street <laughs> doing uh, driveways and sidewalks, which, you know, lasts like 10 months of the year. So you can, it was, uh, that was actually a pretty good business for a couple of years. <laughs> I can imagine. What were some of the earlier jobs you had? Anything, uh, you know, from a W-2 standpoint in high school or going into college? Yeah, I did some work, concrete construction. I did some work as a handyman. I think the coolest job from a early W-2 deal that uh, taught me a lot was I was actually freshman year of college and I was open that I was in the student union hall and a guy was walking up in a suit and I thought he was like a dean or a professor so I held the door and he looked lost and he said hey, I'm trying to find the computer lab and I said well I was getting the 15 steps it would take to get there and I said you know what how about <laughs> I take you there he said thanks and says so I'm walking there turns out he's a 78 um, year old guy starting a business Oh my gosh. So he'd retired wow. from his fourth career and was starting a new business at 78. And he told me because retirement kills people. So he just had to keep working. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, he hired me by the time we got to the computer lab. He said, Hey, oh my gosh. I'm looking for a guy like you. And uh, would you come help me do this startup? And so he was a, starting a financial planning business, doing pension plans and investments for high net worth families. And um, for the next like six years, I worked on and offer him just learning the fundamentals of small business and really learning from a sage um, in the world of relational business. And he became just a, a huge champion for me and a huge mentor for me. Wow, that's great. And how long did you work with him? Uh, yeah, about seven years, actually. Oh, really? Wow. Wow. So beyond college as well then. So um, you mentioned you were the first in your family to get your degree. Was it kind of a foregone conclusion that you'd go to college, something your parents had out for you, or was it more kind of self-motivated? Looking back, it doesn't quite make sense. It was just a it was a foregone conclusion that I probably would, but none of us knew what that meant or looked like. Um, when I left high school, we were in a pretty tough financial time, so it was going to Medicaid, food stamps, and, and challenge. There wasn't resources, so um, you're still in Alaska at that still stage. Still Alaska. In so high yeah. I ended up going to college in Chicago to a private school, and literally showed up with eight hundred bucks in my bank account, and that would not get me through about three weeks of tuition. <laughs> um, and just had this, I knew I was supposed to go to school. I knew it's called to do this one. And so I, I worked two, three jobs all through college, just worked full time while going to school full time. Um, never knowing how I'd pay for it, but just knowing this is what I got to do. How did you pick TIU? I went to Chicago, actually checking out some other universities that I had um, invitations to and actually had some good scholarships to, had an extra day and really on an impulse went and visited Trinity, uh, Trinity College up in Deerfield. and. It, it doesn't make sense. My wife was, so I left the college visit going great school, good faculty, um, and prayed about it. And my wife or my family and I all really felt like I was called to go to that school, but it didn't make sense because it's the only school I didn't get a lot of scholarships to. Um, and the program was great, but just still wasn't like clear why my wife would tell you it's because she wasn't going to any of the other colleges. So I, I think I paid a premium <laughs> to find a 
a grade A wife. To find her. Yeah. She was that's there. terrific. Did you meet her in your first year? I did. Oh, that's awesome. And what did you decide to study when you went to Trinity? I ended up getting a, a business degree and then and then minoring in philosophy and theology. So I kind of had a blend business theology track. Yeah, very interesting. And what made you kind of decide to go down that road? So I, I actually started out as a pastor, a pastoral studies major. And mid-year, my advisor actually said, I think you should drop this degree and get a business degree. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I'd read a lot of things, spiritual things. I'd done a lot of serving in my teen years. And he said, I, I don't know that you're going to get a lot of new thinking in an undergraduate program. I think you should get a, a degree with practical value and then, you know, take Greek, take those other things. And you can go to seminary one day if you want, but why don't you study business? And I went, well, I never thought about it, but I jumped in and, and I just loved it. I enjoyed it a lot. And so that's how I, I made a major change in my first year. Well, I'm sure it probably helped too, given the, the entrepreneurial past with a snowblower and obviously the need to work while you went through school. What, what kinds of part-time jobs did you do while you were in Chicago? Uh, so I, I did handyman stuff. I worked from retail jobs. And then I, the, the thing that actually started my career a little early is the Walgreen Company was headquarters a few miles down the road, and they opened a subsidiary right near my college campus, a startup that had maybe 40 employees when I joined it. And I started working with them full-time while I was in college. And that's the Health Initiatives brand, right? Yeah, we talked about that beforehand. Terrific. And so uh, you kind of uh, did some internships with them while you're still in school, or were you working part-time before you graduated? Uh, uh, all of the above. I actually yeah. worked uh, full-time for them while going to school full-time. And then I did internships with them as well and got a chance to kind of tour the corporate, uh, the corporate divisions a little bit. Yeah, great company. I'm sure you got some terrific learnings there. What, what about leadership responsibilities? Did they give those to you early on? They did. They did. I had chances to run uh, call centers with a couple hundred people in them and, and had a chance to manage some IT technical teams and, and uh, a variety of things. They really gave me a, a ton of opportunities to do things at a very young age um, that were really stretching and formative for me. Was it a bit of a challenge? I mean, uh, you know, working for a secular company, being kind of a faith-based guy you are in that first job. Yeah, so that was the company where I first realized I had this kind of sacred-secular divide. I was working on my own, what does it mean to be a Christian in business? Um, I certainly was a good Jesus guy. I think I had a decent testimony, but working that out. And then I was surprised that um, the company actually repeatedly affirmed uh, my faith because they liked the values. And I remember one boss who, him and I couldn't be more opposed uh, spiritually and he'd say man I, I trust the moral compass your faith gives you and uh, that gives me a lot of trust in giving you responsibility in our company you know what a nice confirmation you know it's been very consistent and i shared with you prior to the podcast uh, even though we haven't really focused much on you know ceo spiritual background and with your background it's hard not to talk about it but it's come up so often with many of the CEOs we've spoken with and how they've had that compass, whether they, you know, had grown up in the church or had found that, you know, that type of ethical and integrity and honesty was something that they valued, uh, but also in the people that they hired, you know, and uh, looked out for that. So that's terrific. You had that affirmed so early on. We were actually going through a values experiment I entered into. So the company in 1990 had a thousand stores in the country um, in the year 2000, had 5,000 stores. So we'd gone through a hockey stick explosion, good to great was written, all that kind of stuff. And corporately, the, the big dilemma was, you know, you can hire skills and resumes and degrees, but you can't, it's really hard to impart your values and your culture. And so I was actually part of a 
a bit of a study group going, well, what if we actually look for the values we want and then teach the business to those people? That's so true. You know, uh, John Nordstrom, who was the son of the founder of Nordstrom's, was asked at one point in time, you know, you've got such great customer service, you know, uh, how do you train these people? What, you know, what's, what's going on? He says, train them, develop them. He goes, <laughs> they were born that way, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, he really focused on those folks that were raised in a certain way that had those values and he knew what to look for in those values. And then they taught him about the retail business. It's, it's really not that complicated. <laughs> what about some of those responsibilities or, or rather leadership lessons that you had from bosses and mentors and, and, you know, good and the bad. Um, I'm sure that in those early years at Walgreens, and then when you got into some of your small and medium-sized businesses, uh, you had uh, bosses that perhaps exhibited behavior that wasn't, uh, you know, perhaps the the best modeled. Uh, and you don't need to mention any names, Mike, but <laughs> tell us a little bit about some of the good and the bad and the ugly, so to speak. So I, I fortunately had a lot of good bosses. I certainly had a, a few run-ins with with ones I was not so thrilled about. I, some of the ones that really shaped my um, appreciation for leadership was realizing that the the managers or directors who who took a, an onus honest and genuine interest in my development as a person, um, man, that it made you so loyal and committed to going into the, you know, the fire with them versus the ones who were just clearly all about them. I remember a boss who, uh, came by and he, he'd, uh, asked me for help in these different projects and, and I would take on some extra work and then he'd go present them and, and, and claim complete authorship. The credit. Yeah. And, uh, it was just all about him and he got to where everyone just kind of resented knowing, man, this is, He's trying to get somewhere and we're just stepping stones versus a boss who came to me and said, hey, this is going to be a really tough month. I need your help. Um, this is going to really forge this in you. And he just kind of vision casts where we're going. And, you know, reality is I would, I'd climb a mountain for that guy. Yeah, right, right. No, it's so important. Do you remember the first time you started managing people, Mike? Yeah, I do. Um, it was, I think the first time I was managing people was actually running a, a smaller local call center in a healthcare company that Walgreens had. So maybe had 30, 35 people in it. And what were some of the lessons you learned during that period? Um, I learned a lot about the danger and power of measures. Um, <laughs> so if, for instance, in a call center, you have lots of stats. It's a very statistically driven business. And you do things like, hey, we're going to measure call times. Let's get our call times down because that drives labor. Um, well, if you put that up, people will hit that number, but you'll pay for it other way. So people will just hang up on customers because that'd get their call time lower. Yeah, right, And your customers right. call back angrier and they call back three times. So then we started measuring, you know, um, your how how much of your day you're productive, you know, on the phone. Well, people then just put customers on hold and they take their break during a phone call. And I learned the kind of whack-a-mole reality of management science. Be careful what you measure because it always comes at a cost. Anything else uh, from those early years of, of running uh, those centers or, or directly managing people, particularly maybe it's folks that had develop development opportunities? Yeah. Um, realizing that everyone is really hungry for feedback and um, the power of, it, of letting people uh, be part of figuring out a big issue together. I, I mean, part of what some managers modeled for me at the same time was was entrusting me with something that was a high stake project. I didn't know how to do it. Um, and, and they took some risk of letting me figure it out. I'm going, hey, this is, we've got to figure this out in 90 days and be resourceful. And that stretched me and they go, okay, well, how do you invite other people into that and see where their, um, see where their limits are? 
and let them stretch. How would you say your leadership style has kind of evolved over time, Mike? It has evolved to, you know, at the end of the day, my passion is really about uh, who is a person. And uh, I was just out in Seattle a few weeks ago, and I, I went to the famous uh, Canless restaurant. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a famous dining restaurant. I think it's the number one restaurant in Seattle. And Mark Canless is the fourth generation leader of it. And he, he mentioned the, the question he asked every new employee, um, who are you becoming and how will working here help you become that? And when you look at every person as someone who's on a formational journey, professionally, personally, you know, spiritually, um, and you engage in that way, it just changes the rules. It changes um, how problems can be dealt with. It changes the conversation. Thinking about your own career and, you know, your progression from the Fortune 50 through to small business, nonprofits. I know you were a pastor at a church for a while. Um, did you ever think you'd become a CEO? No. In fact, um, when, I was in, when I was in college in business school, our, our school format was you'd actually form a corporation and every semester you'd compete against other corporations. And there'd be this uh, natural entrepreneurial kind of competitiveness. And my, I remember my first two years, I kept saying, I want to be the number two guy. I wanted to be a, a vice president. And so I, we formed a corporation. I was the vice president. And uh, about three months in, they said, hey, we think you should be in charge. And said, so I became the president of our little corporation. <laughs> and we, we won the competition that the year. And so this is high school like, yeah, or, or college? College, college. And so the second year, I was like, well, okay, I won last year. You take, you know, you be in charge this year. And so I, I took the second seat again. And about two months in, they're like, Mike, you should really just be in charge. Maybe I got control issues. I don't know. <laughs> well, you got some early indication of your leadership. That's for sure. <laughs> and so we, we won the business competition every year. And I kept going, well, I don't want to be in charge. And they kept going, but you really, you should be. And so, um, no, I, I never envisioned, um, never envisioned this. In fact, I mean, the current company, I was a customer nine years ago. So it's just nothing I would have guessed. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you first find out about C12? Did you, did you meet Buck, you know, one fine day or how did you kind of get led to uh, becoming a member? So I was living in Texas and a, a buddy of mine run, ran a construction company and he was the first member of a, of a new C12 group in our community. I'd never heard of it. And he uh, was telling me about it one day and he's like, Hey, you should really come check out, you know, C12. And he told me a little about it. And I said, no, thanks. And he said, man, you, you love God. You love business. This seems right up your alley. And I said, actually, I find a lot of Christian business things are kind of weird. Um, they can be kind of wacky or goofy or I just, I wasn't a big fan of what I saw when I looked at Christian business things typically. And he said, man, this is a different kind of group. And he, he kind of gave me his pitch as a member that, um, man, we're about business excellence and work is worship and business is ministry, eternal impact and a life in order. And, and it's, it's rigorous and high accountability and about getting results. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So he, <laughs> he sold pretty hard. He, it sounds like he, he did a good job. So <laughs> I, I went and checked out a group and, uh, was a super cynical prospect. I went around interviewing everyone. Like, why are you here? Does this actually work? Um, and man, I drank the Kool-Aid and joined. So that was summer 2010 up in Austin, Texas. And that was and, pretty quick uh, after founding, right? When did things get started originally? No, I actually started back in 1992. Oh, has it been that long? Okay, got it. So it had been around a while. Okay, got it, got it. It had been around a while. I, I didn't meet Buck for maybe, oh, seven, eight, nine months later. I mean, I'd seen videos of him, but. So became an active member and then became a chair yourself too. Is that true? Yeah, so our model is based on the idea of a full-time chairman who 
facilitates these monthly peer advisor groups and does the one-on-one coaching and the, and they recruit people who have you know ran companies been in the c-suite um and get to do it as a peer and so my chair pretty early on started going hey have you ever thought about i was like nope, you're going back nope. to college now right they're asking you hey, take a leadership role here <laughs> yeah I, I said no i think four times and one day he called me he's like hey i know you're gonna say no would you just pray about it for a week? Because what if you're wrong? What if God says yes and you're the one fighting him? And I was like, okay, I'll pray about it. And <laughs> long story short, yes, yeah, so I, I uh, made the transition to, I needed to to free myself up. And then I became a, a chair. So you did that full time then? So you'd left your, your current job. Got it. And then were you, did you transition from that to the, to the staff and then the CEO position of C12? Or was there anything in between? So our... Um, our model was there was a a chair who already led this area and I came on as really his associate for a year or two. And then um, there was a, a big transition and a friend and I actually bought him out and then had a real vision to want to build up a, a community of entrepreneurs who would really transform a, a community um, at large. And so we built out a, a practice with over a hundred leaders in it and really were, um, just chasing a vision we felt God gave us for the area. So did that for the next four or five years. And so it was in 2016. Our, so our, our company nationally, the parent company, um, it's been around since 1992, was on its second leader and he was retiring. So they began a succession process. And that's when I got to... You had multiple groups then at that time, I assume, right? Oh, four yeah. Five yeah running. Excellent. Groups. Terrific. So now you're in that corner office. Talk, talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on you know, building a company culture, particularly one that's been, you know, 20 plus years old, Buck's still around, obviously a very strong personality. Uh, I haven't met him yet, but certainly seen a lot of the same videos. And, you know, what's it like uh, coming into an organization like that? And, and how important is that culture for you? Well, it's, it's a great question because, um, so I stepped into a 25 year old company with a tremendous legacy and vision. Um, and yet we, we relocated the company we changed over most of the staff. We reincorporated the business, and we we embarked on our first kind of major product overhaul and a kind of re envisioning process. And, and through that, I've been spending the last year and a half really working through what's the what is the unchanging founder's vision that needs to be preserved in this, and and then how do we adapt to the fact we've now got an organization and a global footprint um, with groups on three continents and four countries and thirty five states, and so. Um, we spent a lot of work really working through, so what is our our mission and our vision, our core values behaviorally going to be? And just actually just re-released those this past spring, kind of a 2.0 iteration of those um, to make sure we uh, we know where we're going and what we're, you know, what we will do and won't do and how we're going to behave getting there. What would you say is unusual or, or unique about the C12 uh, culture? Um Man, so we've got, uh, we engage an organization called the Best Christian Workplace Institute every year to do a, a cultural engagement survey. And uh, we've typically kind of busted the, the scale in one of the eight dimensions of flourishing they study. And one of them is having meaningful work. Um, we've got a pretty audacious BHAG kind of language laden mission framework. So our mission, our mission is to equip Christian CEOs and owners to build great businesses for a greater purpose, but the vision that fuels is literally to change the world by advancing the gospel in the marketplace. So what that translates into is is a really high shared commitment to this vision, a real high sense of, of higher purpose and meaning in everything we do, and a, a real, one of our core values, it's 
unusual is uh, a BEMA mindset that we, we really believe we are stewards and that we have eternal accountability for everything we're doing. And that, that means that uh, every aspect of what we're doing matters to God and needs to be done really well. And so that there's a lot of drive. Um, and it's, it's, we're an entrepreneurial group serving tribes of entrepreneurs around the country. So that just creates a bit of a weird DNA. You mentioned that there was a you know changeover in staff. You guys had a relocation, and I think you probably interview most every, if not all, new uh, group chairmen, right, that come in. So tell me a little bit about you know, what do you look for when you're making bets on these people that you invest in. Yeah, that is the that is the trickiest part of our business. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, from where I sit, it's the trickiest part of every business. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah you're in the recruiting business. So so man, if if I could figure out a secret way to you know find perfect people that literally is the hundred million dollar question because if you gave me a, a hundred million dollars and said grow c12 i could spend a bunch of it on tools and marketing but what i can't buy is man how do you find men and women who've got the business acumen of having led and built businesses the spiritual acumen of really having a vibrant you know faith and they've integrated those two things they've not lived one way on sunday and one way on monday um and then they've got this sense of calling to want to see the success of other people and to have the the uh, EQ and the competencies to be a, a facilitator, a trusted advisor. Um, you know, I, I say we're, we're hunting for unicorns. So we we typically talked about 70, 75 people for every one we select. I was just going to ask you that question. Wow. That, and that's for chairs or was that also for that's staff? For chairs. Yeah. Wow. That's for chairs. Wow. That's, uh, you got a high bar, very high bar there. And uh, how successful have you been with that? I mean, I know uh, from my own Seek 12 group and, you know, Bill always covers the, uh, my chairman, Bill Jolly, covers every day, the every m- month that we meet, you know, the new offices opening up and it seems like, uh, you know, the organization's continuing to grow. Um, are you meeting the goals in terms of what you think you need in terms of new groups or, or isn't it driven so much by the expansion as is about finding the right people? Good question. Um, so we have, We've gotten better and fumbled and better and fumbled <laughs> and and we think you know we think we've got a better recipe right now that seems to be delivering because it's both can you find people and then the real fruit real test is are they successful do they go build groups and do those groups produce the effect you want to see and we're seeing a lot of good leading indicators that we're, we're getting that better um, we we have shifted our focus we were in a, a mantra to try to get as many leaders as possible in as many cities as possible and we still vision-wise want to get there but from a near-term five-year discipline we're really focused on building out high-performing teams in cities to make sure we reach critical mass and core markets that has the the lasting transformative effect we want to have so we are you know we continue up our our quota on the leaders we're trying to find but uh, usually the best leaders we're looking for aren't looking for a job they don't uh they don't know this role exists, so it really comes down to oftentimes referrals and um, finding people in various places. Quite a, uh, a, an on-taking uh, for obvious reasons. It sounds like the, the, the focus is a lot more on quality than quantity. Yes, absolutely. How do you personally interview and hire, Mike? By the time they get to me, they've gone through a pretty extensive process, so it typically takes about three months before they're talking to me for an um, end-stage interview. So we've gone through all the normal you know, assessments, and we've done reference checks, and spouse checks and we've done multiple rounds of interviews around skills, competencies, and calling. And by the time it gets to me, I'm really, I'm really wanting to know uh, how does this person know, not that they could do this, but man, they have to do this. Like this is what they're called to do. They gotta be that, that 
we always say the fire in the belly, the, the want to is so much better than the how to. Um, and then yeah, passion, grit, and resolve for that. Then uh, ferreting out um, how they're going to approach measuring their own success and their ability to be about um, doing whatever it takes to see Brandt be successful and their capacity to provide accountability and uh, the right kind of counsel to it. Um, making sure they've got alignment in their home, that their spouse is on board. But this is a, a real mutual sense of calling. Um, and then we've got a very defined process. So the other challenge, I mean, so I'm, I'm looking for these unicorn leaders, but then we've got a platform. Like we've got a recipe that we know works and it's got to be replicated. So then you're asking entrepreneurs to say, okay, now, now use my recipe book. Bring your personality to it, but you got to use this recipe book and making sure that they're the, the kind of leader who's going to do that and has the vision to really reach their city. So important. What, what metrics do you use for success? So when, be, uh, be bearing in mind the, the, your opinion about metrics though, on the call center days. <laughs> well, our number one value, core value is results matter. We say God measures results and so should we. So we measure everything. Um, so I'm, we got a lot of dashboards and KPIs. When Buck was first founding C12 as an experiment in 92, he founded it with a couple of KPIs. He said, here's going to be my test of whether or not this should become an ongoing venture. Uh, will people come? Will people pay? Will people stay? And at the end of a year, will they attribute transformational impact that they attribute to them being in this? And at the end of the year, I think he had like 85% of people, he had 37 members his first year and 85% of people stayed and renewed. They all were paying and they all said, man, this is, this has led to this change in my leadership business and, and uh, world. And so we cycled it. (laughs) Yeah. So we can, we have maybe more nuances on those same questions, but it really is, do, does someone reach people? Do they stay? Do they grow? What's the outcomes in their life and business? And uh, everything else is kind of details of those measures. Mike, we're just about out of time. And thank you so much. You've been very generous today. We always like to ask one last question, though, of all our uh, CEOs that participate in this podcast is, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone who's, you know, got their eyes on their own corner office in the future? So I I think one of the most uh, significant character traits to help you achieve that is curiosity. Um, so I, I, I ended up interviewing for a lot of jobs I didn't know I was interviewing for because I'd go and ask successful people, I'd like to meet with you and understand how you're successful and how you work and how this department works. And I was genuinely just trying to figure it out. But curiosity gives, fills in a lot of blanks and builds a lot of relationships. So I would say be, uh, be deliberately curious and ask and uh, assume you don't know stuff. Well, once again, Mike Sorrell, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.